Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends and leave a five-star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. Welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. Now, today I have got a man that is a guy totally aligned with my values, is an author, a speaker, a coach, and he is the one and only Michael Heppel. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much. What a lovely introduction. I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited about this. Very, very excited. I, I love what you stand for. I love the podcast. I can't believe I'm on as a guest. I, I better give good value now. <laughs> oh, well, I have absolutely no doubt. And of course, I said that we've got some aligned values. And that is really, there's lots of areas we're going to get into, but in particular, the world, word brilliant. So I can see it behind you there. And on your LinkedIn profile, this is what Michael says on his LinkedIn profile. Make sure you check it out. It says, I teach people how to be brilliant. My God, who doesn't want to be brilliant, Michael? <laughs> You'd be surprised at how many people don't want to be brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they're frightened of their true potential. Maybe that's another, another topic for us to talk about. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, honestly, it's a real, real joy to have you on. Um, and we, uh, we've, we've got a few people in common that we know, uh, in particular Jamie Waller, who has also been a guest on the podcast, uh, who is a fantastically inspire, inspiring leader as well. So well, he is, he is brilliant. If you want to be brilliant, check out Jamie Waller. He's, he's, he's brilliant at being brilliant, no doubt. He is. He's a great case study. Absolutely spot on, and just an all-round nice guy as well. Yeah. Right? Definitely, definitely. So this is the power of networking. This is the power of being connected with like-minded people and gravitating to people like yourselves, Michael, that, you know, really we do have, you know, common common things in it that we both feel passionate about, really. So it's fabulous to have you on. So, Michael, I always like to start by hearing from you about your journey where life started. Obviously, I've done a little bit of digging around myself, but it's always good to hear it from the horse's mouth. So do you want to fire away and then we're just going to have a nice old chat? When people say, how do you get started? Usually what happens, especially people who do my job, you know, who are inspirational speakers or whatever, they talk about they grew up in a shoebox and their parents were separated when they were a month old and they had a terrible time. But I actually had a really lovely childhood <laughs> with very caring parents who loved me. But dad had his own business. So that was my kind of first introduction to what it was like to be an entrepreneur, seeing my dad doing the 18 hours a day when he first started and all that type of stuff. And then when I was 15, I made the decision that I would join my dad in the family business. And that was a roofing contractors. So, you know, I leave school at 16, I joined my dad, and it was very exciting. And I have to say, you know, since sort of about the age of seven or eight, my dad was always saying, one day, son, this will all be yours. And, you know, when you're eight years old, the prospect of owning, you know, two vans and six ladders is quite exciting. But then things change, and things change very rapidly when I started to do this work with my dad. And after about a week, I realized I'd made a terrible decision and I didn't want to be a roofer. So I thought I have to build up the courage to tell my dad, I don't want to do this job anymore. 
and seven years later I did <laughs> so for seven years I worked for my dad and I did a job that I didn't love and it, but I, I got an apprenticeship which was good and I learned a trade and I learned how to work with other people and I learned some good stuff and it was you know very rewarding especially driving past someone going I did that I put that roof on and you know that type of thing but it, my heart was never in it and I and I used to be a volunteer youth worker and I got a chance to be, become a full-time youth worker and to do some special projects. And somebody believed in me, a guy called Alan Percival. And you know when you have those, if there's somebody in your life who is going to have a massive effect, this was the person, Alan Percival. My life changed because of him and he gave me a chance. Daft Mickey Heppel, everyone knew me as Daft Mickey Heppel, um, got a chance to be to do this work and... I did youth work and I also managed the charity's involvement with the National Garden Festival when it was in Gateshead in 1990. And that's when I learned about fundraising. I thought, well, that's an interesting profession. I wouldn't mind doing that. So I became a fundraiser and I worked with two charities. One was a children's health charity and I was doing the community fundraising. So this was organizing sponsored walks and doing talks and assemblies. And that's where I learned how to speak. So, you know, I used to sometimes do maybe 15 presentations a week. I would be doing, you know, lunchtimes doing Rotary Clubs, evenings doing, you know, women's institutes, school assemblies, all that type of thing. And, and but the money was difficult to raise. It was very, very challenging. You know, our average donation was £9.10 pence average, and we were raising £12 million. Pounds. So you can imagine how long that's going to take. And then I was asked to be director of a new charity that was being set up for County Durham. So I'm County Durham lad new charity, County Durham Community Foundation. I thought, I'm going to do this differently. <laughs> I'm not going to get £9.10. pence. So our strategy was to find the most wealthy, successful people in the county or who had links with the county and ask them for a lot of money. That was the strategy. And my average donation there was £37,500 average. And I met extraordinary people like one day i remember meeting david brown the guy who invented the caterpillar you know the big split axle trucks that you see in quarries and things and you know he gave me a donation of one hundred and twenty-five thousand pounds which when you're a fundraiser is called a good day's work <laughs> and um i would always when i met successful people ask them loads of questions because i was fascinated by people at this point and I'm asking them all my usual questions. What time do you get up? How do you deal with this? How do you keep a mindset? Blah, blah, blah. Go through all this stuff. And after about an hour, he said, Michael, stop. Let me ask you a question. I was like, yeah, he said, what, what is it, Mr. Brown? He said, what are you doing right now for your own personal development? And that's a great question because, to be honest, I wasn't really doing anything. I said, well, what, what, what do you mean by that? He said, okay, what was the last book that you read? And I think it was like a Jeffrey Archer book or something embarrassing like that. So I pretended I couldn't remember. And then he said, okay, let me suggest you read a couple of books. I think you should read a book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill and How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And I'd never heard of those people. And I drove from his house to Durham City Centre, went to Waterstones. They had one of the books in. I ordered the other one and I read those two books and that was it. My life completely changed. I thought, this is what I want to do. And... You know, so I was learning this stuff. I went on loads of courses. Another question that he asked, which was really good, what was the last course that you went on that you paid for? Not work, that you paid for. That is a great question. Ask anybody that. Not work, you as a person, as an individual, paying for your own education. That's a big one. And I started to do all this stuff, and eventually I got a chance to teach what I knew to kids. So there was a program called Discovery. I'm teaching this on weekends. 
And then the company who ran this business said, look, we want to start and get into education, do work with teachers. Um, would you like to come and work with us? So I moved to Scotland, went to do that, ended up teaching teachers, which are the hardest people in the world to teach because they already know everything. Apologies to any teachers who were listening or watching, but they already think they know everything. And, um, and I realized actually after about my first or second session, I was in the SH1T with this because I didn't know enough. I knew the fluff. I knew the, I knew the rah, rah, the bit on the surface. I didn't know the science. I didn't know why it worked. And I met a guy called Professor John Macbeth, who at that time was head of quality in education at the University of Strathclyde. He went on to be director of educational leadership at Cambridge. I mean, this is a guy with a brain the size of a planet. And he took me under his wing and became my mentor to learn the, the thinking behind why this worked. So if somebody said, why does positive thinking work? I could say, well, actually, there's this great piece of research about the um, the cognitive behavior of the neocortex when you process positive language patterns, and here's why it works. And they'll be like, oh, wow, great. So then education, we're like, okay, he knows his stuff. And I ended up going to the World Thinking Conference in Singapore. Did you know there was such a thing as a World Thinking Conference? Never heard of it, but I've got to go. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. This is like all the top thinkers from the world all come together. And this one in Singapore had... 2000 people and we got a chance to do a workshop now these great thinkers are, are rubbish at marketing but i knew a bit about marketing then so we had leaflets printed we marketed our seminar we really went for it and by the end of the this week we presented to 1800 of the 2000 people there which was amazing and after that everything just exploded and people were like can you travel here can you do that and the people who i worked for at the time were like oh we don't want to do that we want to just stay in education I was like, no, we've got to go everywhere. We've got to do all these amazing things. They didn't want to. So I thought, right, time to start my own business. I think we all have that tipping point moment where it's time to do your own thing. So I moved back to the Northeast and I started a, a business with the imaginative title of Michael Heppel Limited. That's not strictly true. When I first started my business, it was called Zoom and that lasted for seven months. And um, my business was called Zoom. I actually owned the domain zoom.co.uk and I let it go. Can you believe it? Oh! <laughs> um, somebody else has that now. <laughs> it's a redirect. And, and that was when I started. I just had this big goal to positively influence a million lives. And I had no idea how I was going to do it. After five years, we were nowhere near the target. And then, um, then I wrote a book called How to Be Brilliant. And after that, everything changed. So that's, that's the, the intro. Hope that wasn't too long. No, obviously there's so much in here, Michael. Really appreciate it. But yeah, it's interesting because you've had lots of different kind of phases, haven't you, in your kind of professional life and, you know, starting out in that business with your dad and all those years ago and then kind of really finding your true calling, your purpose, if you like, with what you're doing now and how you, you create such an impact in the world. It's, it's really incredible, something to be genuinely proud of. 100%. Thank you. Yeah, massive well done. Um, so we've had a look back to you growing up as a kid in in the you know the the the, the you know the family that you had. You said you had a very happy childhood, and and your dad was you know he was a business owner. And was would was he entrepreneurial? Do you would you say, Michael, or was it just that he was a grafter and worked hard and, and kind of ended up with his own business, or was it a superb superb question? And you're the first person ever to ask me that, and I. And I think it's a really interesting answer. I thought my dad was an entrepreneur, but actually looking back, he wasn't. He was a grafter who 
we used to work for his uncle and eventually took over doing running his business and got no thanks and no pay for it. So said, right, it's time to do my own thing. Did that. And then I think the most people we employed at one point was about 12. And then when I started to work in the office, I was saying, dad, there's loads of things we can do. I mean, he was exceptionally talented. I mean, it sounds crazy to say this, but probably the, and this it does sound mad, but I promise it's true. Probably the best roofer in the world, my dad, the people who manufactured the products would get him to do the manual on how to fit it. He taught the British roofing team who won the world championships. If there was ever a really complex problem, people would fly him all over the place to go and help them and fix it. And he never charged his worth. He never did. He used to say to like people like Eternit Slate, who were you know this massive global manufacturer, he used to say, "Oh, don't worry about that. I, I just pay my expenses." I'd be like, "Dad, you could be charging you know hundreds or hundreds of thousands of pounds a day." Oh, I don't want to do that. And then suddenly there'll be something where there'll be a shortage of a particular product, and he would ring up and say, "Oh, I need ten thousand of whatever," and they would get him those ten thousand like literally the next day, and he'd say, "You see, that's building relationships." I used to think I'd rather have the, the 10 grand <laughs> than have and, and wait another day. But he never saw it like that. And um, and other people did start to see it. And eventually, um, my brother took over running the business. And he, you know, I love my brother at the bits, but he's not an entrepreneur. He's not a natural entrepreneur. And the business went bust. It went to liquidation. And it broke my dad's heart because you could just see him watching this business that he'd built over all these years. Uh, just got him a and, and of course, they blamed the cowboys. Well, it's the cowboys. It's about price and all that type of stuff. And I was like, it's not. It's about value. And they wouldn't, they kind of didn't get it. So, yeah, it was a little bit sad in the end to see what happened. But, um, you know, he, he did brilliantly. My dad did really, really well with it. And my mum was a health visitor. So she was, you know, in kind of people care and all that type of stuff. And then, you know, did various things. She became a magistrate. And, um, you know, so I used to sometimes go and watch my mum in court and try and put her off, <laughs> that type of stuff. So, yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting time. Wow, incredibly inspiring then in, in lots of different ways from, from sort of those early years with your parents. And are your parents still with us, Michael? My mum is. My dad isn't. He died 10 years ago. Um, but my mum's very much around. Yeah, she's a Fan. force. <laughs> Fantastic. See, again, we have that in common because I lost my dad 10 years ago, but my mum's still around and is still very much a sort of, you know, a powerhouse of a woman at 85 years, you know, old, but still got it, you know? It's, yeah, uh, it's great. great. Great to have strong women in your life, isn't it? Definitely. And let, let, let's talk a little bit about, about the... I suppose your your shift into fundraising and, and the charity side of it, do you think that was a natural move because of, I suppose, almost the money mindset that your dad had around giving a lot for free and just helping people? And also, you know, what your mum was in, um, in terms of, you know, the care work and stuff that she did. Was that an influence of you going into that side of things, do you think? Do you know, I don't know. I think what happened was this guy I mentioned before, Alan Percival, I was doing this volunteer work and we went to visit the national garden festival organizing people about a year or so before it opened and we were bounced from department to department to department and eventually this guy said you need to be involved with the charity center and we went oh what's that and so there was a building there with all the different charities I said who's organizing that i said well nobody yet we're looking for somebody and alan just bam talk about an entrepreneur he went we'll do it and i looked at him and he went yeah we'll do it and then we got in the car and he said michael I'm going to offer you a job. We'll do some youth work and you can manage the charity center with me. 
And it was so brilliant because the child, the, the organization I worked for was the Boys Brigade. So it's like a single sex youth organization, very old fashioned, linked with the church, you know, really. And, and suddenly Alan had this idea to progress and for us to be the beacon and everybody had to come to us. So we had, you know, the um, National Children's Homes and the NSPCC and the, um, the, the Bernardos and the Wildlife Trust and all PDSA and all these people had to come through us. And I used to watch what the charities were doing and some of them would complain all day there's nobody coming in we're not making any money or whatever and there was one charity called the northumberland wildlife trust and they brought in additional shelving and they went from the bottom to the top and their volunteers were active and engaged and they would do a training with their volunteers every morning 30 minutes i said right here's three questions to ask as people come through the door do this do this engage with that if people buy raffle tickets ask them at the same time if they want to buy a calendar if people buy a calendar ask them if they want to buy raffle tickets they made a fortune an absolute fortune and then these other big brands the nspccs they were like, it's not working, it's not working. I was like, this is really, my brain was fascinated by it. Because we used to have to give us our figures at the end of each week. And at one, there was one week in particular, we had 16 charities there. The Northumberland Wildlife Trust made more than the other 15 put together. What does that tell you? So I became fascinated by fundraising and this new charity that was just launching called the Elbert Road Appeal. They, they looked at me and they said, right, we need a community fundraiser you look like you know what you're talking about. Do you want to come and join us? I was, yeah, it sounds, it sounds interesting. And you know, when you have a, a mission where everybody is on the same page and everybody wants to achieve the same thing, that was it for me. I've never worked as hard in my life. I'll be at work seven o'clock in the morning and I would be coming back from doing talks at 10 o'clock at night. And I was so energized because we used to walk around the children's wards and see the problems that were there. And we had the northeast of England is the home of pediatric care. You know, Sir James Spence, who was the modern founder of pediatrics, it's from Newcastle. And we had the worst records and the worst state. And I thought we can change that. And everybody believed the same thing. And it was it was a remarkable time. Wow, fantastic. And, you know, again, yet again, another example where you really were so clear on what you wanted to do and the role you played and the impact that you could have. I mean, it's been quite a few of these moments as you've been talking through your journey. You know, you knew you didn't want to be in the family business, so that was probably more about what you didn't want to do. Yeah. Uh, then actually finding your calling with the fundraising, then actually saying, well, hang on a minute, further down the line, you know, I want to positively influence a million people and help yeah. Brilliant. All these different phases have got a common theme, haven't they, around you being really clear on your reason why and your purpose. So I want to talk about that a little bit, Michael, and, you know, again, how to help people, because I always think that for people to unlock their true potential, it's, it's an inside job, isn't it? You've got to start in in a you, first of all. And a lot of people don't know their reason why, don't find their purpose, maybe never find it. So can you just talk us through a little bit around sort of how you found yours and any tips for people that want to unlock their brilliant? How do they find their true reason why? Yeah, and and you know that thing about finding your purpose, you're right, some people never find it. Uh, these days, it's more common that people talk about it. In the past, we didn't. You know, I remember when I was first doing my stuff with my dad and things, you wouldn't talk about what's your purpose in the, in the 80s, you know. Um, I think people are more open to it and having discussions. I think the key thing is uh, we need to create an environment where people are allowed to fail. And there's such a lot of talk about success and success strategies and you need to do this and you need to do that and you can do it. 
and, and people are terrified about the idea of failing. So their purpose is, it might be that they mess it up four or five times before they find it. And I think we need to say that's okay. That's absolutely fine. You know, I, I kind of, I'm really proud of my, my kids. So I've got, you know, a son and a daughter. My, my daughter, when she left university, started her own business on day one. And I had so much admiration. I was like, oh, I'm so proud of you for doing that. And after about nine months, she said, I'm lonely. I'm really, really lonely. When I did my year, she's, she's in PR and marketing. She said, when I did my year in a business, I loved that buzz of being in the office with other people. And then she's continued to do one or two days a week with this company in Leeds when she was at uni. And then she says, that's all gone. It's just me sat at home by myself. And so I'm, I think I'm going to close the business and start. And I was like, I love that. I love that you want to start and work with somebody else. I love that you want to get a job because you did that. And she goes, yeah, yeah, I kind of, I really felt like I wanted to be more like you, dad. And I was like, oh, please don't say that. She goes, no, 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 it's the spirit of you that I love. I just thought that you did it by starting your own business. And she started to work for somebody else and she totally blossomed. And she was like, I remember saying, I found my passion. I found my passion. It's been part of a team. And that's what, and she's done that since, you know, she's had an, another job and, you know, she's, she's part of a much bigger team now, you know, global business. And so I think you know, everyone's passion needs to be found, but it's okay if you fail on the way to finding it is probably the key message. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right because, you know, we, we, I think it's partly cultural as well, you know, in America, you know, there's much more of an appetite for failure and seeing it as growth. You know, you, you might have to, your business might have gone bush and walk into the bar and everyone will slap you on the back, oh, well done, what do you learn? You know, whereas here it'd be like, oh, you know, people almost sometimes, uh, it brings out the worst in human nature. Sometimes it's a British thing, you know, around. It can. Yeah, and, and I think that's a great shame, but I agree with you that, you know, arguably if you're, if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough, you're not pushing out of your comfort zone. Um, yeah. So fairly way to greatness, 100%. And, you know, and the knockbacks can, can be really hard. I mean, listen, let's talk about, about, about your kind of business life. You've obviously given us uh, some great examples where you've massively succeeded, but I bet there's been pretty dark times as well for you, Michael, where it, where it really was tough and you were thinking, oh, my God, what am I doing? This is really hard. Do you want to talk about a few of those ourselves? And then that might help others too. I mean, there's a couple of key ones. So the first one was... When I started my own business, I'm starting a personal development business. Oh, it's going to be great. And all these people, oh, if you start your own business, we'll, we'll book you, we'll, we'll employ you. Not a single one of the people who promised me work gave me any work. So in my first year, my turnover for the whole business was 12,000. That was the turnover. I was absolutely on my arse. And, we'd, and I'd, my family had all just moved up to Scotland and I moved them all back down again, back to the Northeast. My wife was working, she was a consultant and working for Tandem Computers. So she was commuting back up to Scotland on a Monday morning, coming back down on a Friday. The only work I could get was with a network marketing business who did stuff on Saturdays and Sundays. My family life was a disgrace. I was a bad husband. I wasn't a particularly good parent. And my health was all over the place. I piled on loads of weight. Uh, it was, it was, hopeless and i got the end of that first year and, and my wife said look it's not working you have to get a job and i was like all right okay I'll, I'll i'll look anyway i didn't so she found a job for me to apply for and i actually got the job and i had to pretend i didn't i had to then you know say to her oh i didn't get it 
And it was only years later when I actually said, I'll, I'll let you know, I did get that job, but I couldn't take it. Because I knew if I took that job, I'd go back into safety land. And I had to have the, the risk. And so a, a few things kind of, you know, weren't really happening. A few things were, you know, I, I felt bad, but I knew I had to do it. I knew that it was, it was kind of my calling. And then just a, a couple of things flipped. I remember one day I did a job for, um, it was one of those business networking type things, one of the, you know, the government organized ones. And there was somebody in the audience who came afterwards and said, can you come into my business and help me? So what do you do? They said, we make garage doors. I was like, all right, great. It was a company called Henderson Garage Doors. And um, so I went along. I did a presentation um, for him in front of the senior exec team and got to the end. And I said, so I hope that I might be able to help you. And he said, we're going to take a vote on it, but let me tell you, I'm in. And he was the sales director. And everyone just went, all right, great, we're in. And he said, um, I don't know what your price is, Michael, but it's going to be thousands. And at that time, I would have taken hundreds. And I just went, yeah. And I pulled a number out of my head. I said, it's this amount. And he went, great, let's do it. And in one deal, I made more than I'd made in the whole year beforehand. And I was determined. I mean, I was so determined. My God, I was going to do whatever it would take. And I took them from like worst performing area. And in 90 days, I love this 90 day time frame. They, they did really, really well. And this guy was the best advocate. He told anybody with ears, you've got to work with Michael Heppel. Michael Heppel will transform you. Michael Heppel, get him in as a speaker, get him in to train your staff, get him in to do that. And this guy called Mel Lovett, and I love Mel for that because he was my cheerleader. And in that next year, everything started to work. Still wasn't doing brilliantly well, but it was like we were making enough to survive. And then the, the, the big moment came when I wrote a book. And that was that was amazing. I've never, you know, and, and a lot of people would say, oh, you know, you, you write a book, it's the best business card you can ever have. It has to be a good book. <laughs> Can't be a crap business card that you're handing out. But I got a chance to write this book, uh, How to Be Brilliant. And if, I'll be honest, if my mum and two other people had bought it, I would have been thrilled because all I wanted was that. I wanted my name on the front of a book. And that went into the top 10 business books in the UK. And um, and then a, it stayed there for two years and four months. I mean, I would have been happy if it had been there for a week. And then a per, they, they said, will you do like a personal development version of it? That went into the top 10 for another year. And the phone was just ringing and people were saying, brilliant, bro. And then I was like, this is it. I'm really on the up. And then just when you think you're on the up, the rug gets promptly pulled from under you. And I made a fatal mistake that I let my ego take over. Male ego is a terrible thing. You know, female ego is bad, but male ego is worse because it's all that willy-waving stuff that goes on with blokes. And I met this bloke who was like, I've got this training business. Me and you should merge together and we can take on the world. I was like, all right, great. Yeah, let's have a look at it. He said, here's the other partner. And it was somebody who he was called a doctor or something. So it was like, oh, that's all very posh and all stuff like that. And I sold my business into this bigger training business. We ended up with 70 something staff. It was, I was at, working so hard, but I didn't believe in it. It was all about how they could make money. It was all about how you can get, you know, grants for this and grants for that. And all that type of thing. I was thinking, oh man, and I'm doing my courses and doing my stuff. And it, I got the point after two years and I was exhausted and I knew I was being screwed. I just didn't know how badly I was being screwed. And we had HSBC as a client of ours at the time. We did loads of work with them. And I thought, you know what? The only way I'm going to get out of this is if I buy 
all the business if I buy the other partners out. And so we got um, totally HSBC about funding us to do it. And the guy who was the regional director sat and said, okay, just let me send one of our forensic guys in for a day to have a look at the numbers in the business. So they went in, sat, I remember we sat at our kitchen table and he went, Michael, all the profit in that business is made from you. Everything else just turns over or loses money. You make all the profit. So you shouldn't be buying the rest of the business. You just need to get out. So I had to buy my own business back, my own name. I mean, it's crazy. I had to buy my own domain. I had to buy my rights. I had to buy my IP, everything back from this business. And it cost a lot to buy it back. It was remortgaged the house time, right back down to nothing, lost my top team members, all that type of stuff. But I thought, you know what? I've done it before. I can do it again. And this time I have got a brand. I've got a name. Let's do it. And the other thing I did, which was the smartest move ever, my wife came and she got involved with the business and she changed everything, absolutely everything. A level head, a person who would tell me to calm down, would put the ego in check. She started to travel with me, started to do events with me. She started to do the event production. Everybody loves Christine. She's funky. She would do these amazing bits of music, sound effects, great visuals, all that type of stuff. And we just went from there, whoosh, right up to the next level. Fantastic. Well, I'm glad I asked the question, Michael, because, you know, people don't often see what goes on behind the scenes, do they? Or they ever see you when you fall flat on your face and maybe kind of like take pleasure from that. Or they see the massive successes and don't realise, actually, there's been a lot of trials and tribulations to get to that that point. So I think yeah. it's really important that we're honest and we share the highs and the lows because that's, yeah. isn't it, you know, 100%. So that, I really love that. Now, let's talk about um, book writing. Book. Mm. Proper Northern, right? Well, yeah. Book. Book. <laughs> book. <laughs> <laughs> I actually say book, not book, but my dad used to say but no, uh, so so when it comes to to writing a writing a book, then you know, and that was obviously transformational, the pivotal moment that really kind of catapulted you up. Um, what was the approach that you took? Where did you get the inspiration? How did you physically go about it? You know, yeah. they say everyone's got a book in them, don't they? But how the hell did you unlock? <laughs> so my mine was slightly different. I recorded the audio first, so I had this. Remember when people used to have those CD sets or even cassette packs? I used to buy those Nightingale Conant ones. I always wanted to do one myself. So I um, created this audio program called How to Be Brilliant. I used to do the course as well. I had the audio program. And I met via a networking thing. You know, it's what put it out there, it comes back. A guy called um, David Bell, who at that time was director of people at Pearson, the, the publishers. And... I did this usual chat with him and trying to get inspired by him and all that type of stuff. And I said, I've got a present for you. And I gave him these six CDs and he looked and he went, is that a book? And I went, not yet. And he said, well, it should be. I'm going to introduce you to our top publisher. So I was, it was kind of very fortunate, but also I did a little bit of work and put it out there. So I met a lady called Rachel Stock in um, the Hotel Duvan in Leeds. And the Malmaison, I think they're all the same, aren't they? Um, and we had lunch and we sat down and we're having a, a, a chat and I was telling about this book and she said, Michael, I love this idea. I'd, I'd like to commission How to Be Brilliant, the book. So I didn't have to do a pitch document or anything. I just, I'd got the deal. And she said, so we need the manuscript by then and then we'll do that and we're going to publish um, in late spring next year. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean late spring next year? 
it has to come out this year. And she went, well, why? I said, because I've set a goal that my book will be published this year. And she went, but does it matter? I went, yeah, I always achieve my goals. I need to publish this year. She said, well, there's no way that's going to happen. I said, come on, there's always a way. What, what would need to happen? And she said, the only possible way we could do this is if you'd already written the entire manuscript. Because I've actually got another author who has messed up and missed their deadline three times. So I'll move them to spring next year, and you can have their slot in the process. And I looked her in the eye and said, it is written. And she went, really? You haven't mentioned that? I went, yeah, yeah, it is. I've, I've written it all. And she said, I'll need the manuscript by at the latest next Tuesday. This was the Thursday before the Easter weekend. And I went, yeah, yeah, no problem. I'll, I'll, I'll get it to you. She says, oh, great. Well, we've got a deal. So I left. I got in the car and I rang Christine. I said, cancel everything. We're writing a book this weekend. And we wrote, between the two of us, we wrote How to Be Brilliant in four days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, printed manuscript, drove it back down to Leeds. I said, oh, I didn't want to miss the post, so I brought it down for you. And then years later, when we did the 10th anniversary edition, I said, I want to tell that story in the book. And she said, well, yeah, you, you, you can, because I knew you were telling a lie. I said, I wasn't telling a lie. She says, Michael, I knew you were, but I also knew you would do it. So that was how the first book came about. And it did really well. But the, the big moment was when I wrote a book called Flip It. And, you know, again, just people think writing the book's the job. It's not writing the book and promoting the book. That's the job. You've got to promote it. You've got to build a tribe. You've got to talk about it. And I was talking about this book, Flip It, everywhere. And Chris Evans, who was on Radio 2 at the time, he managed to get a, a copy of the book. And his producer rang me up and said, oh, Chris has read your book. He loves it. Would you be on the show? I was like, yeah, yeah, of course I would. Chris Evans, you know, drive time show on Radio 2. And he, I did this call and I talked about a life-changing moment. He started the show and he said, today's show comes from my Christmas book recommendation. It's called Flip It. It's by a guy called Michael Heppel. It's the best personal development book that I've ever read. And I've got him on the show later on. I want everyone to buy 10 copies. And I was listening to this. And I'm thinking I'm on here in 20 minutes. I'm just looking at my wife and going, <laughs> and she's going, breathe, calm down, just breathe and calm down. And Chris raved about the book. I mean, I didn't have to do any work at all. And within eight days, it was a Sunday Times number one bestseller. And that's a game changer. You know, people talk about a book being a bestseller and actually what it is, it's been on Amazon's bestseller list, you know, for half an hour, one Wednesday afternoon, Sunday times and number one are the, that's the title that you want. And it was only there for a week, mainly because they couldn't print enough. It was over Christmas time and they couldn't print enough copies. All the printers were closed, but it didn't matter. It was completely, completely life-changing. Oh, fantastic. You know what, there's a couple of things as you're, as you're speaking that are sort of resonating with me. One is that you just say yes. When opportunities show up, you say yes, and then you figure out how you're going to make it happen afterwards in the case of the manuscripts and, and also just kind of putting yourself out there to the world. But also, I think the power of your, your network, really, you never know who you're going to bump into. You never know who that person that you happen to speak at, speak to over a coffee at a networking event. You don't know who they know. You don't know who they are, what their backstory is. 
And I think that is incredibly powerful. And that has led you, hasn't it, to all different connections has led you to those situations materialising, you know? And I think that's, a, that's something that people need to, you know, never be afraid to put yourself out there. And, and have- that, is the, that are the words. That's just what I was going to say. You've got to put it out there and then you have to listen to what, what people want. So, you know, I'm, I, here's me, I'm a professional speaker on stages all over the place. Suddenly, um, we get to the end of 2019 and Christine said to me, look, I love what we do, but next year, can we do less traveling? We've been away from home 159 nights in 2019. And I said, I promise you next year we will do less travel. And then we have a global pandemic and nobody traveled. So I'm sat there thinking, well, what am I going to do? So I set up a Facebook group called How To Be Brilliant and it became this kind of real positive place at the beginning of the pandemic and everyone was kind of going, this is the beacon of positivity, you've got to join this group. And every single day I did a live broadcast, didn't charge anybody for anything, just put it out there, put it out there. And then I thought, right, I need to do something else. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll ask people if, they, if I can teach them something. So I sent out a survey and I said, I can teach you a How To Be Brilliant program five-star service because I wrote a book called five-star service which is you know done again run really well it's the best-selling customer service book by a British author in the UK and so that I can do that I wrote a book called how to save an hour every day so maybe I teach time management and I put this survey and I was literally about to hit the send button and I just wrote one more thing I thought oh or how to write a book and 75% of people came back with how to write a book so I started a program called write that book just did it as a pop-up and it completely exploded. So we had 700 people join the first one. Then I did a masterclass. We had 70 people on the first masterclass. I've done five now. I've had um, over 400 people do the masterclass. And if you're watching this on the video, see the shelf behind the one that says brilliant, right up to the T on brilliant. They are all published by people from write that book masterclass. So now my job, for the last 19 months is to help people to write publish and sell their books i thought it was rewarding writing your own book and it certainly is it's like better than having kids it's brilliant when you open the package and there's your book but helping other people to fulfill their dream and to write theirs i have totally found this is what i want to do for the rest of my life now i am going to help i'm going to help at least a thousand people that's my new goal to help 1000 people write 1000 books in 1000 days that's my big goal. That's my mission. And every time they send a little video of them getting the box and looking at the first copy and that type of stuff, man, it's it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Oh, fantastic. You know what? And I've got absolutely no doubt that you're going to achieve that goal because, like you say, you always achieve your goals. So yeah. that's going to happen. It's already done. It is already done. <laughs> it's, uh, no, it's fantastic. You can help me as well when I'm ready to write mine, Michael. That'll be- you, have you not written a book yet? Come on. I know. What a story you've got to tell. Jeanette, come on. <laughs> I will, I will. I've, I've got some ideas already written down. So, yeah, I've got some ideas. Um, probably all my crazy years in Russia and China and India. and all my Definitely. Honest to God. Anyway, that's for another conversation. But, yeah, <laughs> it is inspiring, Michael. And like you say, you know, if people, everyone's got a story, haven't they? Everyone has got something to contribute to the world and and finding their voice whether it's through public speaking or through being on a podcast or writing a book you know that is really going to help so many people not only unlock their own potential but the ripple effect that that has of all those people that have read those books you know yeah. it's incredible well, you know writing a book makes you a better person 
because you have to really think about what story you want to tell. You become better at writing by writing a book, obviously. But also when you start and put it out there, you become much more confident. So a lot of people who are kind of, you know, oh, I'll write a book, I'll just I'll be quiet about it. You know, six months later, they're doing podcasts, they're being guests on things, they're doing stuff on shows, they're doing the stuff in their local paper and radio stations and things like that. It makes you a better person by writing a book. And if you can sell a bunch of them as well, that's the bonus ball. Absolutely. I can see you've got your T-shirt on. Write that book. Yeah, do you see what it says there? It's not the book you read that will change your life. It's the book you write. There we are. I love that. Gosh, you've got some classic lines, Michael Heppel. I have. <laughs> <laughs> and talking about classic lines, now I read this on your bio. So, Davina McCall apparently said, and I'm sure this is absolutely true, the person who, in one hour, changed my life. Yeah. And that's you, Michael. Tell us about the story and the connection with Davina. So I was coaching a guy called Simon Woodruff, who you might have heard of, who was the founder of Your Sushi, one of the original dragons on Dragon's Den. And Simon had a, a, a boat. He still has got the boat on the Thames. And he, ha and he said, I don't, I don't mix with people. I said, come on, let's do an event. So he did an event. And Matthew Robertson, who was Davina's husband at the time, he came along. And we hit it off. I got on really well with Matthew. So I gave him a copy of How to Be Brilliant. Two months later, a friend of Christine said, oh, have you seen Davina McCall's talking about how to be brilliant in a magazine article? And didn't know about it. So I wrote to Davina and I said, thank you so much for mentioning how to be brilliant. Next thing I know, the phone rings. Davina does this. She rings people. She went, hi, it's Davina. As, I, like, as if you're like a long, long lost mate. And she said, I just want to say it was a real pleasure. I love that book. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, do you do coaching? I was like, yeah, I do. She goes, I'd love to book a session with you. I was like, yeah, no problem at all. When? <laughs> I'm in. So <laughs> we booked this session. And honestly, she'll tell you this. She tried to cancel it so many times. She suddenly lost her nerve. And we did this session and we sat down. At that time, she was doing Big Brother. You know, she had a terrible relationship with her management. There was a lot of stuff that was not good for her. This is not, I'm not talking about a term. I'm not talking about a coaching client. I never would. No. This is all in her book. And um, and about forty five minutes in, I just said, Davina, it's time. It's time to change. Now is the time to change. Let's do this and let's start now." And she started to cry, properly ball. And she was like, "What do I need to do?" I said, I, "I'm your coach, not your counselor. You tell me what you need to do." And she goes, "I need to redefine what I stand for, but my management will not let me leave Big Brother because." I said, "Why not?" She goes, "Because." because well, the cash cow isn't it they get their 15 percent, and i do all the work so right okay let's get you a new manager and she was like no way and i said who who would be the perfect manager she said oh simon fuller you know who was managing the beckhams and the spice girls and all that type of stuff so i said okay um give him a ring she says all right i'll ring him i said no right now give him a ring so anyway, she rang his office and um, I think it's 19 Management, it's, it's called. I said, oh, hi, it's Davina McCall. Um, is Simon available? She met him once before at a dinner or something. I said, oh, I'm sorry, isn't he's in LA at the moment. So um, she was like, all right, okay, no problem at all. If you just maybe tell him I called, and I thought, that's fine. Thanks very much. Bye, 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 bye. 10 minutes later, the phone rings. She looked and she went, oh, shit. I said, go on, answer it. I was hello. Simon, hi, how nice to call. So, and it, he said, I couldn't believe that you called asked for help 
She had a meeting with him. He said, I'm not the best person to manage you, but this is the best person to manage you. She got a new management. She left Big Brother. She refound what she stood for. Um, I did about two years worth of coaching with Davina. And she she's the most extraordinary, caring, kind person. I mean, I know she's Marmite. Some people absolutely hate her. And she goes, look, I don't mind being Marmite. I'd rather be loved by lots of people and people love what I do than be so bland that I don't make a difference. And and she's introduced me to loads of people. I work with Sarah Cox because of her. I work with Patrick Kilty because of her. I've worked with some other people who don't want to be named, but like one of the most famous women in the world came through an introduction from Davina. One of those people when you sat in the same room as them thinking, I can't believe I'm actually sat here with you right now. This is mental. This is crazy. This is bonkers. Um, all from Davina. And she's now just one of our closest friends. She's brilliant. Oh, fantastic. I love that. And and just again, you know, the impacts that you can have. And, and when you put yourself out there in the world, you're brave and you make those changes. I mean, she totally transformed from being in an unhappy place to being in a really happy place. And yeah. that's about isn't it you know because yeah. you know it doesn't okay we want to be financially free and all the rest of it but ultimately it's not necessarily going to give you the joy and, and the happiness that you're looking but for it goes back to where we started earlier about finding your purpose and find what you're really about mm. and and for Davina it really is about impacting lives and making a difference to people and she, and she said you know when she does long lost family she said, it's just the greatest gift to be able to do that show it's amazing and then to campaign for things so stuff she's doing at the moment about menopause. Yeah, People weren't say. talking about it. Mm. And now they are because of Davina and because of her program and the books that she's writing. And she makes a difference. It's great. Uh, absolutely. And hey, listen, I would love to have Davina on Brave Ball Brilliant because she would be such an inspiring guest to have, you know, because she stands for all three of those words, you know, absolutely. So, Michael, you can do me a nice introduction to Davina. I would do that with pleasure. <laughs> absolutely. Well, because it's about spreading spreading the joy, isn't it? And helping people. That's why I started this podcast. You know, I don't I don't do this podcast um to make money. I do it to help people, to inspire and 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 share ideas and thoughts and motivation. And you know, even if only one person listens to an episode and goes, you know what, that really helped me, that's it for me, job done. Um, you know, because for that one person, then that's that's made a difference. So yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's a great thing. And and we love our brilliant word, don't we, Michael? We share that. Uh, we have that in common. Um, so, so you know, when you um, you said how to be brilliant, so the book, how do you achieve brilliance? Well, I think, I think you start off by being dissatisfied with being good. If, so if, it's, if it's important to you, then choose to be brilliant at it. So when I do training courses and talks and things, People, I'll say, what do you want to be brilliant at? And people go, everything. I say, you can't. I don't want to be the negative here, but you have to choose maybe three things that you want to be brilliant at because the amount of energy and effort that it takes, and it is a scrap and it is difficult to be brilliant, you be selective. And then once people decide what it is that they want to be brilliant at, then I'll say, okay, what does good look like? What does fantastic look like? And then the difference between good and fantastic might be that, you know, the, the big step, but the tiny step is towards brilliance, that little bit. And it's doing the things that other people don't do and finding the way that other people can't see and putting it out there a little bit more than everybody else. And for me, that's what brilliance looks like. And it, when you see it, the most obvious place where you see it is with something like sport, 
where you don't have to be, you know, 10 times faster than anybody else. You have to be, you know, 0.1% faster. And that's what that will make the difference. If you see in business, the people who are the best business people, a friend of mine has just sold his business for 200 million pounds last week. Um, started off as a coaching client, became one of my best friends. He's brilliant at doing what he calls doing the right thing. He just does the right thing over and over and over and over again. Just keeps on doing that. And by doing that, you know, has built this business in last week, 200 million. And then on Monday morning, he's back to work. Straight back to work on the Monday morning. It's just amazing. You should have him as a guest. Andy Alderson, he's called. He would Andy be pro- Alderson. Oh, yes. <laughs> you want Andy. He is <laughs> He's amazing. One of the most inspirational people you could ever meet. He's another okay. Jamie Waller. Oh, well, listen, there's only ever one Jamie Waller, but I'm sure yeah. Andy's got his, his own uh, magic about him. He sounds great. And you're absolutely right, you know, it's the incremental gains, isn't it? It's the extra 0.1%. It's the extra 1%. And, you know, I always say, who wants to be mediocre? If you want to be in the top 5%, the top 1%, that means you're absolutely right. You have got to do what 95% of the population is not prepared to do. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's the reality, isn't it? But there's a trick as well. You don't have to be in the, to be in the top 1% at something. Look at four or five things that those people do and just work on being in the top, one, sorry, top 10% in those five things. And by doing that, you will automatically end up in the top 1% of that. So if it's networking, don't be number one networker, be in the top 10% of networking. If it's about, you know, creating great product, you don't have to have the very best product, be in the top 10% of product. If it's customer service, you don't have to be Ritz Carlton, just be in the top 10%, not hard at the moment because customer service has gone to the bloody dogs. Anyway, keep doing that and, and that sweet spot in the middle, that's where you'll be in the top 1%. See, I'm loving the science behind this, Michael, coming back to your earlier point. <laughs> hey, yeah, no, you're absolutely right though. And, then, and I think, um, you know, to not live your best life, what a shame, right? Because we've only got one. We don't know how yeah. long. Yeah. So let's make it count, right? Totally. 100%. Yeah, fantastic. My God, we're going to have to have another, have another podcast episode, Michael. <laughs> so much so much to talk about we haven't even touched on yet. But um, listen, I want to want to just kind of get some final thoughts from you, if you don't mind, Michael, because sure. you've had a fabulous, fabulous career and you're very honest, you're very open, you're truly authentic you. Um, and I think that your brilliance just shines. Uh, I love your energy. I really do. And, you know, when you look back over all of the years you've had, can you think of, you know, the best piece of advice you've been given? Or, you know, a really good piece of advice that maybe stayed with you for years. I, I can think of a lot, but there's whenever somebody asks me a question, I just go, go with your intuition, whatever pops up. And one just came into my head there. Um, so I'm I'm pretty good at speaking. And uh, someone described me, a, a, like a, a guy who's booked loads of speakers. He said, Michael, you are one of the top three professional speakers in the world. I've worked with them all. I was like, wow. And that really could go to your head as a big ego thing. But brilliantly, my wife, she said, I'll tell you what would be quite good. Why don't you work with a speaker coach? I said, what? What do you mean? She said, well, work with a speaker coach and just get someone to give you some advice. So after, I was coaching um, a guy called Patrick Kilty, who you might have heard of, a comedian. And I said, and Paddy's brilliant. On stage, he's phenomenal. He has such a brilliant way about him. I said, Patrick, would you come and watch me do a talk and give me some feedback? He was like, yeah, I'd love to. And he came to see me speak at the London Business Forum, which is a brilliant event. And afterwards, we went out for lunch. And I was all set to have a nice lunch and a bottle of wine and all that sort of stuff. And I said, so have you, have you got any comments? And he went, yeah, I have. He had five pages of notes. 
honestly, he went into great depth. But one of the things that he said, which really stuck with me is don't chase the laugh. And he said, you know, you, you, you can be funny on stage and you can be naturally funny, Michael, but sometimes you kind of almost straining the point to get a laugh or you work with somebody in the audience and you can see something, you can almost see you looking at it and be like a, a dog chasing the rabbit. Rabbit. People come to see you because they want their lives changed. It's a bonus if you can make them laugh. So don't chase it. And that is such great advice. Don't chase the laugh. Don't try and be who you're not authentically designed to be and you'll be much more popular. So that's that was a great bit of advice. Oh, fantastic. And yeah, for anyone who's who's actually doing public speaking as well, because, you know, especially when you're starting out, it can be really daunting and you think you've got to be funny and you have to do, you know, like other people. But you're right, you know, be yourself. Everyone else is taken, right? Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, great advice. Love that. And can you think of any advice that maybe didn't go so well or maybe it was it was poor advice and you ignored it and you were just really glad that you had? Oh, how long have you got? It's just... <laughs> So much. I mean, the, the, the classic one, which I talk about a lot, and I, my wife hates it when I mention this, but my English teacher wrote in my school report, my final school report, Michael will never do anything with the English language. That was the one I meant to show potential employers. And that same school asked me back to do prize giving. And you see all those books behind me, that shelf below where it says brilliant. That's my books in 28 different languages. And I took them all along and I piled them up on the stage and I got my report out. And I said, my English teacher, when I was at this school said, Michael will never do anything with the English language. And now I've gone on to write um, seven books that are available in 28 different languages. You know, five of them are bestsellers, you know, four of them are international bestsellers. And I said, but that was a long time ago. And my English teacher, Miss Lumsden, would have left a long time ago. And the kids in the audience shout, she's still here. She's sitting over there. I was like, no, no, no. She was very old then. And they were going, no, she's still here. Did I know she was still going to be there? Oh. <laughs> so that, that was, and then the other one was, um, come into business with us, Michael, we'll make you a millionaire. And then losing everything because of it. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. You get advice, but when somebody offers you and it that looks like it's gonna to be too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. Oh God. And and like you say, you pay you paid the price with that particular one and it took you a lot a lot of heartache and cost to to win it back. But then, you know, look at where you are now, right? Because you were brave and you did believe in yourself. Yeah. I'm pleased it happened. I mean, kind of pleased it happened now because Working with other people who find themselves in similar positions, you can probably empathise. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It makes you a much more, um, I suppose, a much more attuned to those situations um, than if it hadn't happened in the first place. That's often the way, though, isn't it? When we when we hit rock bottom or, or things happen to us, it's often those are the lessons that we learn the hardest, and therefore it spurs us on for a greater gift. For example. Yeah, but it's it's shit at the time. Of course it is. Yeah, it feels like the end of the world, doesn't it? It's like a relationship or being dumped or something. You know, you figure your heart's broken, man. You're never going to recover. <laughs> yeah. We all do. We all do eventually. So, no, that's fantastic. And, Michael, we we love our word brilliant, but the this podcast is not just brilliant. It's brave, bold, and brilliant. So when you hear that, either as a phrase or as individual words, what does it mean to you? It means putting it out there and taking whatever comes back. 
and using it, learning from it, being better from it. You know, we one of the things that we encourage people to do within Write That Book is to get online and do broadcasts and talk about your work and read your work and stuff like that. And there's a lovely lady called Di Parker who was working as a cleaner in a school and started to write poetry. And she was terrified of herself. And last weekend, she started to do a live broadcast of her poem that she wrote called Jaws, which is about the movie from the um, the, the late 70s. And she, you could feel the terror watching her on the screen doing it, but she did it. And because of that, she's had hundreds of views, likes, comments, people, when's the book coming out? How do I buy your book? All that type of stuff. And she was like, Michael, I would never have done that without you. I said, it's not about me. This is not about me. I just given you the message. You had to do it. You had to press live. You had to put it out there and risk people giving you abuse and hating it, but they don't. The vast majority, people are good, Jeanette. I truly believe that. The vast majority of people are good. And the odd hater, fine. Let them have their moment. They're probably sad in their own lives. You know, let them have their little moment. But the vast majority of people are good. So if you put it out there, you will get it back. That's being bold and brave and brilliant. I love it. Yes, 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 Michael. My God. This has been such a fabulous conversation. It really has. And, um, yeah, definitely we'll have to do a follow-up because I think the best is yet to come for you, Mike. We've only just started. <laughs> oh, I love it. Honestly, you're, you're, you're really... Do you know what, Jack? I just say, I, I love doing podcasts. You are so brilliant because... I don't want this to, to, to come with the wrong way, but you are just allowing me to have my moment on your podcast. And so many times you do these things and halfway through people go, oh, yeah, yeah I've got a story about that. And I think that when I've listened to you, you've, you, you just let people have their, their time, which I think is why I'm having an absolute ball because I'm talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> you're, honestly, you're very welcome. I'm genuinely fascinated and, and I'm so inspired hearing you know, your journey and everything else that you've got going on right now. It's super, super exciting. So, yeah, thank, thank you for the guest. I've really loved it, Michael. And, um, yeah, you are most definitely brave, bold and brilliant. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review. 